Rural hospitals are the backbone of the communities they serve, but more than 140 of those hospitals have closed since 2010. Today, more than 600 rural hospitals are at risk of closure, and nearly 200 are at immediate risk. So, how do we raise awareness on rural hospital closures and ensure this issue is top of mind in our country? With honest discussion, heartfelt storytelling, and a willingness to make a lot of noise. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 98 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. So, Rachel, our guest today is actively engaged in telling the story, uh, in the story of rural hospitals. Uh, He is putting faces and names to the closure crisis facing rural America today. That's right. We are talking with someone who has experience and notoriety in the media landscape and is using his influence to further our cause. That's right. Our guest today is Steve Gruber, broadcast journalist and host of The Steve Gruber Show, a good friend of mine, uh, someone who has been an advocate and a champion for hospitals such as Hillsdale. I've been on his uh, program many times talking about the challenges of rural hospitals as it related to the governor's shutdown of our ORs and other very critical things that were happening in Michigan. Uh, He's always been a voice for us, and I'm proud to call him a friend uh, for Hillsdale Hospital. And now uh, I'm excited to introduce him as a friend to Rural Health. So welcome to Rural Health Rising today, Steve. Uh, JJ, Rachel, thank you for having me here. So to start, Steve, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work as both a broadcast journalist and a radio host? Well, well ironically, my, my roots uh, trace back to Hillsdale, Michigan. Uh, my parents are both from Hillsdale, went on to Michigan State University. Uh, I grew up in the small town of Williamston, um, 15 minutes outside of East Lansing, give or take. But I spent a lot of time in Hillsdale, so I'm quite familiar with JJ's Hospital and where you work as well, obviously. Um, my mother was born there. My grandfather passed away there uh, with dignity, which is one of the things about rural health you don't really pay a lot of attention to. But one of the cornerstones that I've found in the work that I'm doing currently is that dying with dignity is important. We'll get back to that. Um, but I've been in broadcasting uh, since the 1980s, uh, which is remarkable that the way I look this good for 106. <laughs> but it's true. I've uh, struggled through <laughs> Look at JJ. He just turned yeah, 29 right, right, this week. Sure. So. I yeah, see that. Exactly. Again? Yeah, again. Yeah. You know, yeah. so uh, so our mutual friend, Congressman Tim Wahlberg, called me several years ago and he goes, Jay, he goes, uh, I got a guy uh, and he is he's a solid voice. Uh, I want you to talk with him. And he said, you know, he gave me all the background about Steve Gruber. And I'm like, all right. You know, and then I did some research on this guy. And I want to tell you. Um, I'm excited to hear the response to this next question, but I'm going to tell you if there's anybody that has fire in their belly, anybody that has tenacity uh, in in journalism and in telling the rest of the story as it needs to be told, it is Steve Ruber. So, Steve, what I want to know today for our listeners, and this is a national podcast, so people are listening to us who don't even know who you are. I want them to have a small glimpse, um, and we do this on every uh, one of our episodes, and we start with the why. And what I want to know is, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed every day to do the great things that you're doing right now to spread that good news? What is your why? You know, well, I, I, I say this, uh, my background, uh, and again, I'll start in Hillsdale, where my grandmother taught first grade for 44 years. 
Uh, my mother then was a school teacher for 30 years, fifth grade in another small district. Uh, my father was a pharmaceutical salesman for Dow Chemical. So I got my scientific fascination from my father, if you will. I asked a lot of questions, always, always curious. Uh, my dad apparently used to get in trouble in school. David, don't ask so many questions. Well, that's kind of, that's what <laughs> and my dad, I, I witnessed my father and we hunted and fished a lot uh, because when he was growing up, uh, child of the depression, if you will, they would hunt and fish in Hillsdale County, not to put a trophy on the wall, but to, as a matter of putting food on the yeah. table. Uh, but I would witness my father asking lots of questions to people. He'd ask somebody, and five minutes later, he'd ask somebody else the same exact question. Then he would compare answers. I wow. saw him do this my entire wow. life. And he would say, okay, what do I believe? Uh, and he didn't do it to teach me anything. It's just who he was. And a lot of that rubbed off on me. And then uh, the crafting of words and so forth came from my grandmother and my mother. So the love of language and words came from them in, in the public school system that I can assure you was wholly different than what we witnessed today in the public schools. And then my father was a uh, fisheries and wildlife, a scientific uh, major at Michigan State University, and he graduated in that, in that discipline. So he had a, a great scientific background and knowledge, which also uh, was something that was of great value to me when I was growing up and when I got uh, to be a young adult. You know, quite, quite a bit of passion. Uh, and a lot of purpose. And uh, for that reason, I was extremely excited uh, when I got a text message from you late one night uh, asking me to uh, give you a call. And we, and we worked back and forth for several weeks until I could actually talk with you uh, because you were working on a critical project. Then what caught my attention as I was in a meeting, I believe I was in perhaps Lansing actually, and uh, I got a text from you. And in that text was a two-minute video clip that Steve, mm -hmm. I got that clip and it sent chills down my spine because it is the similar mm -hmm. project that I was starting to work on. And I realized at that moment that I've got the voice that we need to tell the story about rural health because from a third party perspective, you know, you're not tied in with, I don't pay you, uh, no rural health pays you. Uh, you are looking at this from an objective standpoint, which you do very well. So what, what I want you to share with our listeners uh, in, in this program is about rural health. It's about how we sustain rural health in America uh, to make sure that the infrastructures in those respective rural communities are sustainable to make sure that they are the largest economic engines, as you know, Steve, in those communities. And and I and yeah. we're gonna talk about that. But but what I want you to to share with us is for for the person who's never heard about this project, which they will very shortly, uh, tell us a little bit about that project that you're working on to raise the awareness of these hospital closures and really to highlight uh, how that this is a significant problem in America. No, it is a significant problem. Uh, as Rachel mentioned, there are 600 hospitals in trouble, 200 at risk of immediate closure. Um, and so I was, am involved with a project right now to create a brand new documentary. It's going to run 90 minutes. Uh, the final first draft should be done uh, by about this time next week, before the end of the month. Um, so here, as we get, move into uh, spring of 2023, this 90-minute documentary, on behalf of the Epic Times, I'll give them a shout-out because they had interest in the project and funded the project to make it possible. And we've been all over the country. Uh, we've been to Massillon, Ohio, a community of 32,000 people. And then we've been to Kennett, Missouri, a community of 12,000 people. And then to Ducktown, Tennessee, the epitome of small-town America. All three of these places have lost hospitals in the last five years. And the devastation to these communities, uh, the loss of health care, the loss of identity in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really got that sense from a couple people in Maslin, Ohio, because it was called Maslin Community Hospital. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned this earlier when we were talking. It's where people go to be born. 
to have procedures done, to battle life-threatening illnesses sometimes, and then to die with dignity. And for people in small communities, it's a place they're familiar with because they've been there with their family, whether it's for broken arms or, you know, split, you know, chin, uh, stuff that I did when I was a kid, you know, things like that. Or for more presently, it's the center of the community. It's the heartbeat, that hospital is, of, of smaller communities. And when you take that away, uh, the devastation, it's not just about not having an emergency room, which is important. Somebody's having a heart attack or there's been a car accident. You have a trauma center need that is critical and acute. Um, so now all of a sudden the, the ER goes from being five or ten minutes away to being 30, 40, maybe an hour away. You know, the, the time mm-hmm. span is greatly exaggerated. So you've got that. But you, you talked about it there, JJ, uh, the amount of jobs that are lost. One of the most heartbreaking places was Kennett, Missouri. Again, maybe ten or 12,000 people in that community and its services. It's in the boot heel of, of Missouri. So it's in extreme southeast Missouri for people trying to get a reference. I flew into Memphis, drove north through Arkansas to get to Kennett, Missouri, right there just outside of Arkansas. And that community has been devastated. Crime has gone up. Unemployment mm-hmm. certainly went up because it's the jobs that are lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, the quality of life has gone down. Life expectancy has gone down. And the the hospital building that was in good shape five years ago has been overrun by, well, by homeless people, by addicts. Uh, it is, it's, it's heartbreaking to see it. And the first day we were uh, on the ground, you could smell smoke. You, you know, but you never saw anybody. But you knew that they were there, and you could. And, and the police told us that they would go there on a regular basis. Now, spending tremendous amounts of resources to go and police that building, but only when they're called. They said, "No point in going there anymore." There's people there all the time, and they've knocked holes in the wall, and they can sneak around. It's like a like a big maze anymore, and that's mm-hmm. totally heartbreaking. It is um, for all of these communities. Mm-hmm. In Maslin, Ohio, they gave footballs, little footballs, to all the boys that were born there because Maslin, Ohio's. We're very well known for being one of the premier high school football programs in the country, a, a pipeline, if you will, to the Ohio State University and others. And then Ducktown, it was the it was the Copper Basin. Uh, it's where uh, Tennessee, Georgia, North Carolina converge, and that entire area is called the Copper Basin. So the Copper Basin Medical Center, when it closed, again, taking away the options, and all of these communities want their hospital back. You know, and they want to try to figure it out. Now, Maslin, Ohio might get lucky. They've got a philanthropist that might come in and spend several million dollars. Uh, the building in Ducktown is still in good shape. They're trying to negotiate a deal with the VA to come up with some sort of a health facility there. But the one in Kennett, Missouri, I think, is just, uh, unfortunately, a total loss. And so I did walk into this and with my eyes wide open, having no idea what I was going to find. And I, I can say that it's worse than anything I imagined. Mm-hmm. One of the remarkable stories that you had in your trailer uh, was, uh, and I'm uh, I'm sure it's okay if I use her name, but Mrs. Anderson. Yeah. And and you interviewed Mrs. Anderson and her story, Steve. Uh, it's heartbreaking because without the rural hospital in her backyard, access to care much further away, she she told a story about the death of her husband. Yes. Can, can I mean you recall that story, correct? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And not only did she have a connection to healthcare, she worked at that hospital oh. for many years, as did her daughter-in-law, as did her friends. Everybody, again, it's the center, it's the heartbeat of the community. It, it's a focal point for any small community is the hospital because everything that goes on there. So about 2015 or 16, her husband had a cardiac event. Uh, the ambulance took him to the hospital that was still open at the time. He recovered just fine. Uh, about six months after, as I recall, the hospital closing, he had another cardiac event. Well, the next hospital was 
40 minutes down the road. He didn't make it. Uh, and she's thoroughly convinced that he didn't make it because the hospital had been closed. Now, the thing about the hospital in Kenna, Missouri, is it was profitable, $5 million profitable in the year before it closed. But it had been purchased by a larger um, hospital system. They didn't feel that $5 million was profitable enough. That's the way the story is told to me anyway. And so, therefore, they, they pulled the plug on that hospital and pulled the plug on on people like Mrs. Anderson's husband, unfortunately. At least, you know, and, I, and you can never say for sure would he have survived or not survived. Don't know. But we do know that he died in the ambulance on the way to the next available emergency room. Yeah. And that's the way that played out. Yeah. Wow. And those are the faces and those are the stories of what happens with rural hospital closures. And where there's yes. Mrs. Anderson, there are hundreds of other stories that we have, uh, we ourselves have heard from rural hospitals and communities across this country of how their healthcare and their morbidities and all of those things have been impacted by this and birth rates and the list goes on and on. And it's it's really, Steve, if you could, uh, maybe you will disagree with this, but it's a health emergency, in my opinion. No, it really is. And, and here's something else that I have discovered. Um, and I don't know where this plays in, but here's the thing. When do you think about the hospital? If you don't work there, when do you think about it? Basically, you don't. Right. Until you need it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Well, my wife's having a child. Oh, gosh, I you know need some stitches. I broke my foot, whatever. Again, things that happen to me. <laughs> um, but here's something else that's happening right now at a rapid pace, and nobody's talking about it. Ambulance services are going bankrupt left and right in this country right now, yeah. going Going dark. Uh, one just south of Lansing, Michigan, uh, Mason area ambulance went out of business, yep. I think, in September of 2022. It had been there for just over 50 years. They were offered a bigger contract. Uh, a guy that I know owns Mercy Ambulance, a private ambulance service in Lansing. They're teetering, teetering on bankruptcy. They were offered the Mason area. He said, we don't have enough people right now to cover what we've got. Now, MMR, another ambulance service provider in the area, said, we'll take the Mason, south of Lansing area, that whole Holt, Mason, Lansing, South Lansing, that whole area. The problem is what happened is that all guidelines were removed. There is no uh, requirement on response time. You have to have an ambulance that's there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But if you're having a heart attack and the ambulance shows up 20 minutes later, I mean, JJ, Rachel, you know this, I mean, uh, you're spinning the wheel. Mm -hmm. I mean, is your wife or your or your buddy able to do CPR right. for 20 minutes listening to the woman on 911? Yeah. Uh, are you going to make it? So you have these, it, because it's state law in Michigan. I'm not sure how it is in other places. But state law, in order to have an accredited ambulance service, you have to be available 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, yep. period. If yep. you can't provide that, you're in violation. Correct. Right. Uh, and right now, there's a shortage of EMTs, yep. of paramedics, of nurses, uh, of everybody. And, and unfortunately, what you have in the ambulance service is something you have in the hospitals as well, which is people using that as their primary health care. Correct. Right. They, they've got diabetes. They can't get out of the chair, whatever. They call the ambulance because they don't have any other way to get yes. something done. Yes. And and my friend who appears in the documentary, we went and interviewed him about the, the, the ambulance problem. He said, we don't even bill people anymore. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? He goes, if I go to a place and it's pretty obvious that it's a low-income person that's not going to be able to pay the bill. We don't even bother to bill them anymore because you're never going to get paid. No, no. And wow. he said, that's part of the problem. It's something else we learned about the hospitals. Hospitals are never going to get paid. No. Now, we no. talked to the CEO of the Maslin Community Hospital, and she had gone from being an RN, worked there for 35 years, and during her course, she made it all the way to CEO from being an RN. And 
she said, what, and, and you guys can weigh in on this. She said that 1980s and 90s, getting reimbursed from the government was pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could do it with a few days, and your reimbursement rates were mm-hmm. uh, reasonable. Well, since the 90s, uh, reimbursement rates have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the difficulty involved with getting them returned has gotten higher and higher and higher, almost impossible at some points to get reimbursed. And that has been devastating to these hospitals because what they ended up doing is creating entire departments just to try to get reimbursement, which might take as much as a year yes, now yes. if you get reimbursed mm-hmm. at all. Even if you get so reimbursed. these are all big problems. Absolutely. Right. And, and to your point, so a couple items. Number one, just yesterday. I received an email from our director of our ambulance services telling me uh, that they have to essentially retool how they're responding to uh, emergency calls and how it's going to impact my emergency department. I just forwarded that to my senior leadership. Uh, we have patients who are boarded in the CR that are waiting days, sometimes weeks for transfer. Mm-hmm. This is a significant issue, and to your point, and it's secondary issue. Uh, if we cannot get these patients who need tertiary care out of our facilities those patients are at risk of dying in our small rural hospitals. That is a significant concern. Imagine now that that is only intensified by the fact that we have no public transportation in Hillsdale County. In the city of Hillsdale, we have one bus that runs limited hours only for the city of Hillsdale. Patients have difficulty even getting to their local hospitals, right? There's no way that that patient is going to be able to drive themselves to University of Michigan to Borges. And so this is a another significant crisis in our ERs. And to your point, uh, in regards Correct. to how we get reimbursed, uh, the reality of it is, Steve, we're in, a, we're in a situation right now where 70% of our payer mix is the federal government and state government, Medicaid, Medicare, 70%, 70%. And we know that Medicaid doesn't even cover the expenses of performing many of the services for that population, Medicare above cost, just a little bit, commercial is where you make your money. But when small rural communities like ours lose their manufacturing and lose their community identity, what happens? Those communities lose their primary insurance. They lose their commercial insurance. As a result of that, they get on Medicaid and we have a significant problem. Hospitals cannot sustain on Medicaid. So this is also a payer issue that we're facing. And to the CEO you interviewed, she's spot on. The way that the reimbursement operated in the 80s and 90s under DRG to today, we get more denied claims than we've ever received. We have more documentation. Physicians are spending more time on the computer, all of the requirements. Mm -hmm. And then, oh yes, Steve, then the government, each respective state says, doctors, you're going to train under this new requirement and you're going to have to go through this new schooling and you're going to have to attest to this new, uh, whatever, whatever it is of the day. And and these are the significant challenges that we face. So to your point, it is much more global than just your rural hospital. It touches all of these other things. Well, Steve, you said that, um, you know, you came into this with kind of a uh, an open mind and sort of fresh eyes, if you will, to the issue of rural right. hospital closures. So tell us a little bit about what led you to this project. How did you get involved? And is this something you had much experience with or interest in before, aside from, you know, your own family's experiences with rural health care? Uh, not really. You know, obviously, we all went through the pandemic and we know what happened to hospitals. And, mm-hmm. uh, smaller hospitals were told to close because there was going to be this uh, tidal wave of COVID patients that never materialized mm-hmm. in large part. Mm-hmm. So I knew that uh, by by virtue of I'm on the air five hours a day. I do a, a radio program for three hours in the morning. I do an afternoon television program that's on national television from two to four every day, Monday through Friday. And so through that uh, course of my work, 
we had a variety of voices, JJ being one of them, that would come on and talk about healthcare and the challenges and the issues uh, created by the pandemic and, and really created by government mistakes that were, you know, they refused to admit they were making mistakes. And so I became intrigued by everything that happened there. But yes, I came in with with no preconceived ideas or, or, or anything like that. Um, but I do recall the first time I punched in uh, hospitals closing in America on, on a search on the computer, and it brought back about 200 that have closed since 2005, all hospitals, different places. Some were as small as, you know, 15 or 20 beds. Some were as big as 150 beds, depending on where they were. Um, but it seemed to me that the, the smaller the hospital, the bigger the hit, really, for the mm-hmm. community. The mm-hmm. bigger and, and the bigger the risk today, the smaller the hospital, the bigger the risk is yeah. that the hospital is going to, you know, uh, turn off the lights. Yeah. And, and so these are the things I learned. And then you, then you learn the ambulance services are going bankrupt left and right. So if the hospital is closed, it doesn't really matter if you can't get a ride there in the first place. Right. Uh, I mean, and that's yeah. the bottom line. And so one of the things that was shared with me um, by the ambulance service was maybe we need to change, because I go back to the fact that a lot of people use this as primary health care. Um, maybe we need to change some of the ways we do that. And he said, we shouldn't be sending out ambulances to all these calls. We should be sending uh, a station wagon or an SUV or whatever it is yeah, right? yeah. that has medical equipment so forth right. with a one medical person on transport, board. not an emergency right. transport, not not even yeah. a transport, no, not even a transport, just a mobile unit to, to the scene, yeah. Yeah. right? A mobile, a right. mobile, yeah. uh, a mobile uh, healthcare unit, if yeah. you will, mm-hmm. yeah. almost like a like a like a traveling nurse in a way, yeah. right? All right, and you send them out, and then you don't tie up the ambulance for people that really need it that are having a heart attack or been in a car accident or whatever the case might be. Um, you're treating these people for a lot lower price point than you are by rolling an ambulance with a two or three person crew on it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you're, you're starting to address the issue. The problem is you wonder, does anybody want to address the issue in government? Because I sit here and wonder and I, and I see what's going on. I'm like, you create the problems. You, you, you demand, and as you pointed out, doctors spend more time doing paperwork now than they do anything else. The average time spent with a patient is less than seven minutes. If, if you go in for, even for a physical, then you get a, a tech and then you get a nurse, you get whatever. And, and nurses are great to the backbone of the healthcare uh, right. apparatus in America. They do a great job. But the fact that doctors are online, every time they write a prescription and it has to be digital and it has to go through all these different forms, and you're wasting all this time. And then you look at the, at the compensation. Sparrow Hospital, for example, in Lansing, Michigan, things that you learn along the way. Sparrow Hospital, um, a, star, a doctor starts at about 140 grand. That was a couple of years ago, roughly. Well, here's somebody who's probably 30 years old. They've been in, in school for many years. They have massive student debt. Uh, they might have uh, a spouse and a couple of children at that point in their life. They don't want to live in a, in a crappy apartment. They don't want to drive a rust bucket for a car. They're a doctor, for God's sake. They've worked their tail off to get here. They're making 140 grand a year, and it's not enough money to pay their bills. Yeah. There's a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, you're passionate. And if you're listening today Maybe a little. and you didn't hear the passion, <laughs> you, you need to turn your radio up. All right. The reality yeah, put headphones of this, on and listen again. If yeah, you didn't listen again. That. Steve Gruber has passion. But uh, all right, here's here's a million dollar question. How do we change the hearts and the minds of people who, generally speaking, to your point, do not know what's going on? They're just coming into the hospital for their breaks, you know, abrasions. Uh, annual physicals. How do we change? How do we get the headline in your in your opinion for for them to understand the full scope of this problem? And then, what do they do? How do we get them engaged, Steve? 
Well, we've got to start by by informing them. Again, when do you think about the hospital if you don't work there? The answer is you don't. Well, and when do you think about a rural hospital if you're not a rural American? Probably you never. Don't. Exactly. Never do. If it's a rural hospital and you're out on the farm, right, and all of a sudden you fall off and the hay rake, you know, opens you up where you need 50 stitches, and those things happen in rural America on a regular basis, you bust an army, you get kicked by a, by a cow or whatever happens. Yeah. Um, but you're, you're 15 minutes away from the hospital. You're out on your 400 acres doing whatever it is you do, farming for a living, trying to make it, because that's a whole other set of problems we could talk about for three hours. Yeah. Uh, and so then you don't think about the hospital until you need it. And so um, people in some of these farm communities might realize that there's a problem, but they don't realize uh, to the scope that you laid out, Rachel, which is 200 hospitals in danger of immediate closure. I don't think anybody knows that. And, and who knows that, that there are no parameters on ambulances, because let's be honest. People are worn out by the news. They've got sources that are 24 hours a day coming at them from 50 different directions. Who do they right. believe? Who do they not believe? Is that really true? Everything's a crisis. Everything's a disaster. The whole world's going to hell. What do we do? Oh, my God. And who has and time to do to their own research to figure out what is and isn't true, right? For all exactly. of us. Exactly. So it's our job to say, look, we have this problem here. It's a significant problem. It's a critical care issue right now for hospitals in America, certainly smaller hospitals. And, and if we don't address this right now, attention everybody in rural America, you won't have a hospital. And then what will happen is the government, who in my estimation has created a lot, and, and don't get me wrong, insurance companies play a role here, big business plays a role here, government plays a role here. There's plenty of blame to be passed around on right. what has happened to the greatest health care in the world. Yep. America has the greatest health care in the world Absolutely. if you can get access to if it. If you do, right. If you can get access right. to right. it. And, and that's, that's a fact. Um, but if these folks don't realize here's what's going to happen. The hospitals close. And then the next thing that happens is government takes over your health care and we return to a VA system. And everybody knows the VA system is the worst hospital services in America. And that's not the thing with the doctors that work no. there. I'm sure they try right. and everybody. Else. But when you get government that deeply involved with anything, it's a disaster. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it works. It doesn't work well because you all oh, this layers of, of bureaucracy and regulations and doctors filling out forms that are about, you know, redundant to fill out forms that are redundant to fill out more forms that are redundant. You know, it just, it's, it's, it. so then you have the government coming in, don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. We'll take care of you. <laughs> and what follows that is the rationing of healthcare. It's so logical, the progression that we're seeing right now of what happens next. Oh, you know what, Mr. Gruber, a hip, let's see here. Um, yeah, your, you know, your life expectancy on the actuarial tables puts you, you know, I don't think you need a hip because we don't think it's a good use of our resources or we don't want to replace your knee because, you know, look, yeah, you're limping around, but you're not going to limp around much longer. So we're not going to, uh, if yeah. you don't think that's a real scenario that's coming to America, you're not paying attention. Yeah. Steve. All right. So you're absolutely correct. Let's talk about uh, we are. We will take this, uh, and we will be uh, in D.C., you and I and Rachel, and we will be telling this story. We will be testifying. Mm -hmm. I, I can assure you of that. But the question, I guess, that I pose is, what do we expect the legislative body to do? In your opinion, how do we motivate them? How do we get their attention? Well, let's start with this. You know, we're willing to spend tens of billions of dollars in 25 countries people can't find on a map all over the world, right? How about we do this? How about we lower the threshold of reimbursement for Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, wherever that money originates, whatever program it originates from, do the same thing at the state level. Stop with the high barriers and stop making doctors the criminal. 
Are some people going to abuse opioids? Unfortunately, yes. But you don't hold the doctors criminal unless they're actually a criminal, which pretty much 99% of them are not. Are there some that abuse the system? Of course there are. There's always somebody that abuses the system, no matter what the system is, healthcare, government, whatever. So let's lower the barrier. Let doctors be doctors again. Stop making them fill out form after form after form. Let's make sure that reimbursements come back in less than 30 days, like they did in the 80s and 90s. The system worked a lot better then. Let's make sure that we're not saddling certain payers with all the expenses, because if you have if you have the blues or other good insurance, let's be honest. Everybody knows you're paying for procedures three and four and five times, sometimes more than that, to cover the people that came through the door that didn't pay anything. Yeah. So we've got to find some ways to make this simpler, uh, more streamlined. We shouldn't have entire departments at major hospitals dedicated just to get reimbursement from the government Correct. because the government demands all these forms. What a complete waste of time, effort, and resources. Those are resources that could be spent on doctors and nurses and yeah. uh, radiologists and anesthesiologists and all sorts of great things or even robotic surgery, uh, yeah. robotic yeah. Uh, you know, piece of equipment from, you know, the Da Vinci system, whatever it is they want to buy, right? Right. right. All of these things. Right. Absolutely. Let's get the government out of the way. The government is not the answer here. The government's the problem. The insurance companies need to be held more accountable. Mm-hmm. Uh, these big, these other big uh, hospital organizations that come in and buy a rural hospital, like they did in Kennett. Yeah. And then yank the plug on it and say, you know what? We're going to consolidate. We're going to take all the good money out of this building and this facility and this retirement plan. We're going to take it. We're going to consolidate over here. No. No. That's right. Not unless you've exhausted every other possible option and avenue to remain uh, vibrant and to remain in the black. That's right. right. And you know what? Whenever we talk about viability of rural health, do you know what big health systems say? M&As. Mergers and acquisitions, that's how we're going to accomplish it. Absolutely not. You lose local control of your health care when you merge and are acquired by big health systems. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Rachel, is the health care outcomes any better? No, they're not. And in fact, Harvard did a study very recently, Harvard Medical School. um, And the ultimate conclusion of that was that when someone is seen at at a facility that is part of a health system, the quality may be marginally better, which basically means not that much better, not enough for it to matter, right? But the cost is significantly higher. Sure. So we are now enriching a lot of people while taking away healthcare from a lot of people when they close down service lines, even if they buy a hospital and keep it open, but they shut down service lines that standing on their own don't make any money, right? When there's no local governance, there's no factoring in, truly legitimately factoring in the needs of the community when those decisions yeah. are being made and they can say, well, we care about the community and we care about that. But no, they it's don't. like prove no, it. They don't. You know, they don't care. Yeah. They don't care. You've identified it. You've identified another problem that is also something I would have had no idea. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had a, a hernia from, a, from a, a couple of years after having my gallbladder removed. Pretty basic thing. A, a umbilical hernia. Pretty common. I went to a strip mall. I went to, I'm like, I'm going to a strip mall to get surgery. I'm like, and so what I've learned along this adventure is that many of the surgeons realized if they created a nice surgical center, wherever it is, it's nice and shiny and clean, all of a sudden all that money that was going to the hospital comes to them. Right. Right. So they can go to the hospital. They can hire the nurses yes, and the do. radiologists Scrub and, and, and pay them more, for by more the way. Money. They more can money. pay them a lot more than what the money. hospitals can. Bring them over. Yep. And all that money that the hospital was making is now, now they are. In the hands of the surgeons, you know, and I don't have a problem with that per se because I don't know what you do about that exactly. Right. But you've got to find ways to create an atmosphere mm-hmm. 
where there's enough money and time and, and I don't know, adherence and, and yeah. uh, to the hospital so they will stay there and not do that. I don't right. know how you do right. that, but that is a problem. Right. It is well, a huge problem. problem. I don't know the solution. One of the things that I found very interesting when we did our episode with Harold Miller from the Center for Healthcare Quality and Payment Reform that he was telling us that I had never thought about because it's not necessarily this way for us at Hillsdale Hospital, but a lot of rural hospitals – it's actually not Medicare and Medicaid that are their worst payer. It's the private insurers that are their worst payer. And so ultimately, the way he's looked at the data is what are hospitals making or not making on patient services? Because all these other sources of revenue shouldn't be what keeps the hospital open. The hospital should be able to stay open on patient services. That is our core competency. That is why we're here and what we do. We shouldn't have to get creative and beg, borrow, and steal, so to speak, in order to stay open and keep the lights on. Um, And what is happening is that we are not paid what it costs us to provide care. Yet people are scratching their heads as to why are all these rural hospitals closing, right? And it's Mm -hmm. It's not just the gut. There's no good payers, essentially, because that is the issue that happens. And also from some of what he's looked at um, is showing that the rural hospitals, we don't even try to negotiate rates nearly as high as what the large health systems do. The large health systems will start their negotiations at, for example, you know, 10x of what it costs to provide the services. That's what they're asking for for reimbursement. Rural hospitals don't start that high. Rural hospitals tend to start at 3x, 2x of what it actually costs them to provide the service. And so then because there's no real accountability for the insurance companies, they can end up paying whatever a rural hospital is willing to take. And we don't have the negotiating power of System X that bought 12 other hospitals and now has way more covered lives, lowered their costs by shutting down the services at those hospitals that don't make money, taking away maternal care for women by closing the obstetrics units almost always. That's the first one to go, that one or a psych Psych unit, unit. right? Absolutely. And so now we have a problem where there's all these different issues and a lot of things on this podcast that we've talked about, but it really all comes down to we shouldn't have to find another way to be sustainable No. aside from doing what we are there to do. And I almost, the best way I can describe it is I feel like we need to start thinking of healthcare as infrastructure, right? I mean, it needs to be there for society to function appropriately, is that how we start thinking about it? It doesn't necessarily mean that it would be, you know, fully operated by the government like a lot of infrastructure is. But how do we get that right perspective on the level of importance that this has? So with that summary and us almost out of time, I have one <laughs> overarching question for Steve. All right. So here we are. Um, I, I want to know from your perspective. Uh, you've had a chance now to dig into this issue, enlightened, opened your eyes. We've talked about what you think government's role should or shouldn't be. Um, what's the most important message to get out about these rural hospitals today um, to get others involved? What is that message? What is it What is it that this 90-minute documentary that you've invested so much time, effort, energy, what is the intended purpose of that actual communication. And the, the intended purpose is what we're doing here, same thing. Uh, raising the awareness that American healthcare is on life support. It really is. Once you get beyond the city lights yeah. and you drive through some cornfields and some hills, 
and you take a couple of left turns and then a right and you drive by the lake and all of a sudden you come to this small community out in the middle of nowhere because it's not just a little community. It's usually a group of counties. It's a region right. that these small hospitals serve, like your hospital does, JJ. Yeah. You serve a region. We sure do. And so that we, we have to raise the awareness that for tens of millions of Americans, the healthcare crisis is real and is coming to your town, to your community, to your county. If you don't know it, we need to let people know. It's uh, an early warning system. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not even that early. We might be a bit late on the early we, warning system. It's a warning mm-hmm. system to say, look, yeah. we have a problem. Yeah. And the problem is real. And the problem is if these hospitals close, let's say the 200 that Rachel mentioned off the top close. Mm-hmm. Well, how many more millions of Americans are all of a sudden suddenly uh, don't have a proximate yeah. ER? Don't have a place because here's the other thing that happened. And I'll leave you with this: it's not just the ER. Something else that we heard: people wouldn't go get routine tests. Too far to drive. I don't, I don't want to drive. Take me. You know, I don't want to take a day off of work because now I got to drive 45 minutes. I got to drive into the city. I got to drive wherever. So mammograms or colonoscopies or you know whatever uh, standard procedures, things that keep people healthy, preventative maintenance is neglected. Because, oh, I don't want to take a day off from school, and, you know, the kids yeah. got this going on, and I used to be a five-minute deal, and I'd go in for a couple of hours. Now it's a whole day that's lost. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have this compounding of the problem because there's no immediate health care, and so addressing risk factors also becomes a problem. So it's raising awareness is the answer. People need to know that if those hospitals close, it will change not just your community, it will change your life. That's right. They need to know that. That's right. Steve, we could talk for hours, and we will, because this issue starts today. Uh, our partnership is bonded right now, and we're going to forge ahead. We're going to tell this story at conferences across this country. We're going to tell the story to Congress, to state legislators. We have to. This message has to be received in order to save our rural community. So I want to thank you for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. We look forward to having you back on many, many programs uh, into the future. Thank you both. And before we close, we do like to do a fun segment, Steve. Uh, we want to know what is your most unique rural experiences or one of your favorite memories that's unique to rural life. We always like to give, as as our folks across the country are listening to this that may not even have experience in rural America, we want to give them pr- perspective. We've heard everything from, you know, uh, chickens chasing a politician down the road. We heard that one not too long ago, too. <laughs> you, you just name it. Uh, a but birthing center what, operating out of a gift shop after a hospital yeah. flood. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds well, of, you, you know, you know, stuff. Got to make do. Got to make do. You know, uh, you know. listen, I, I grew up on on the back roads of Michigan. Um, and, and I'll just start with my my first experience, a couple of them. Uh, we, we grew up on a back road uh, not far from Lansing, Michigan. And, you know, it must have been a, it was in the 60s. And I was three years old. And I don't remember this exactly, but my mother told the story a lot because uh, it was about this time of the year. There'd been a snowstorm, but it wasn't terribly cold, but there was a fair amount of snow on the ground. She couldn't find me. I was missing. So she followed my tracks in the snow <laughs> about, an, about an eighth of a mile down the street to where the, all those cows were. And I was wearing a diaper, oh, barefooted no. and wearing a diaper, up on the fence talking to the cows. Oh, my that's, God. That was, that's hilarious. That was me. You know, my mother's having a heart attack. You know, where's, you know he's missing. She follows my tracks in the snow and said, you were about three years old and you ran away. Don't ever do that again. That's amazing. Uh, a lot from those farms. And so that's what happened. That, that was my one of my first real experiences in, 
in uh, rural Michigan. Well, that's amazing. Well, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Steve Gruber, broadcast journalist and host of The Steve Gruber Show. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.